Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, and I am your host, Simon Brooks. A meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. People who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and, sometimes, a story or two. I'm glad you're here. I got in touch with Joel Benizzi years ago about a story for the National Storytelling Network magazine, Storytelling. He seemed like a nice guy, and other people who knew him affirmed that. Then a colleague, Heather Forrest, mentioned she had read his book, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness. I bought it and read it, and realised his voice needed to be on the podcast. We hit it off immediately, and the interview turned out to be quite long, at around two hours. So this is part one of the interview. Enjoy. So Joel, Ben, Izzy, thank you so much indeed for joining uh, Conversations with Storytellers. I'm very excited. I've known about you for a, a long time, and we had an interaction a while back when you submitted some stories for the National Storytelling, Storytelling Magazine. I don't know... You, I'm looking at your face and you're looking puzzled. So you obviously don't remember. I have a vague memory of that. Yes. <laughs> and um, I've, I've admired your work from afar. I've seen little bits here and there and everything. And, and then a good friend of mine, a good colleague of ours, uh, Heather Forrest, told me about this book that she had recently read of yours, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness. And I, re I bought it and I read it. And I was like, man, i got to have you on this show. <laughs> it's, your story is phenomenal. So um, I'm very excited that you're here. And anybody that's listening, if you haven't heard of this book, then you should run out and buy it from your local brick and mortar store as soon as possible. Should we actually pause the video to allow them to go out and do that? Uh, probably not. <laughs> we'll, let them, we'll let them pause it themselves. <laughs> Depends on how far they are away from a brick and mortar store. They might be gone a while. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the show, as it were. Thank you. Thanks so much. And and the reason you got the book is because um, Heather's son, Lucas, who she mentioned in her interview with you, he actually bought the house behind ours. Right. And then we were just talking and he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a story. I said, oh, you know, my mom, Heather Forrest. I said, oh, my God, you're Heather's son. What what a thing, you know? So anyway, then she came to visit. Then that's how we, we reconnected after all these years. Yeah, that's that's great. It's a small world, isn't it? The one that it, we live in as storytellers. It seems to be. Well, I don't know if the world's actually small or if we like make connections that make it sort of seem smaller to be able to get a handle on it. Yeah, that's a true statement. That's yes. I think that's probably what it is. And also the technology that we have these days allows us to, you know, when the pandemic hit, it's allowed us to reach out far, far wider than before. I think. I think so. Yeah. 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 We, and we, uh, we end up, we end up doing this. Yes, going the long way. <laughs> That's a really great gesture on radio, isn't it? It is. It is. So, so Joel just put his uh, right hand over his head and scratched his left ear. 
And uh, as when we were at school, we would we would ask kids to do this, or it, you know, it was a ritual, and we got asked to do it as kids. Is you would do that and then say red backwards. Red backwards, red backwards, red backwards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you would go duh. Oh duh. duh. <laughs> Oh, dear, I think they are. It's an English thing. That's right. It is. It's an English thing. We would apparently. say HUD backwards. HUD backwards? HUD, which would be oh. duh. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So th there is a difference between the English language and the American language. Two cultures separated by a common language, I think yes. somebody said. I think they did. I'm not sure who it was. Maybe Mark Twain. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like something. It wasn't Yogi Berra. It wasn't. He it made was. a point of saying, I never said half the things I said, so it wasn't him. <laughs> like a lot of storytellers, I think we say the same thing too. I never said that. That must have been another storyteller. So how did you get into storytelling? Uh, how long have you been doing it for? You know, sort of informally, I, I loved stories as a kid. And, and my, uh, I like found my second grade report card where the teacher said you know joel is great with puppets and stories but i don't think he'll ever hold down a regular job <laughs> and so that's been but but so while, I, while I've, I've loved it it was it was really um about 1980 that i started doing this and i uh i fell in love with the art form then and ended up designing a degree around it at college Oh, you designed your own degree? How did you tell, tell me about that? I did. So I, I, well, I had, you know, I started off at Stanford and then ended up dropping out to travel and search for the meaning of life, which is what one does when one's in college or looking for that, you know, that purpose, that sense of like, what the hell are we doing here? And I ended up back at UC Santa Cruz. And that's where I first saw someone telling stories. And that um, was about 1980 that I was at UC Santa Cruz. I had started at Stanford and, uh, and dropped out to travel and discover the world. And at the time, I was doing mime. So I was, and, and I was not a very good mime. I was doing mime in Paris. I was a mime who was much better at talking about mime than actually doing it. And, and the, mime, the, the mime community frowns on mimes who talk a lot about mime. They like, they go, mm, and they, when they frown, it's one of those big frowns like mimes have. Um, but but that, that career was really going nowhere. And it got as far as a, an auto accident at uh, 119th and Paulina on the south side of Chicago, which was the baddest part of town. I had formed a little tiny mime troupe. It was called the Real World Mime Troupe, which was a very aptly named troupe because all the friends I'd convinced to join and we'd go do street theater and travel around the East Coast, the, uh, they all had to drop out and get actual jobs. So it was just me and a guitar player, and we never uh -huh. made it past that intersection where we met uh, Mary Rose Torres, who was driving a white Mustang about 30, and there were no stop signs, and bam. Suddenly my hip was dislocated. And I got like really a crash course in understanding pain in a way that, that few men ever do. Women, women get yeah. the uh, know about pain in childbirth, but, but a dislocated hip sort of suddenly 
is about as close as one can get. So on crutches, I wow. hobbled back to um, California, followed with the help of a plane and some friends, <laughs> and ended up there. And it was it was the winter of my discontent. I had a, an absolute broken heart because I'd fallen in love with somebody who was just completely wrong for me. She was the exact opposite of me. She was that unattainable blonde that I had no business dealing with. And what was I doing anyways? And, and, and she just dropped me entirely. And I was, um, and, and I was, was, uh, was crushed and, and trying to pursue my career as a writer at the time. And I was sending off things to be, to, to magazines to think, oh, I'll be a writer. That's my call. I'll write the great American short story and sending these things off and getting them rejected. So there was that usual heartbreak. Do you ever see that cartoon in the New Yorker? There's the writer slumped dead over his desk and there are two cops looking at his body and, and one says, look, here's a suicide note. Oh, and, and the writer's over his desk and there's all these rejection notices pinned up against the wall and the, the cops look and say, look, here's a suicide note. He says, this is the worst suicide note I've ever read. So that was me. That was my career. <laughs> it took me a while to get that. And I was like, okay, no, yeah. <laughs> things were, things felt like they were crumbling in general and everything was falling apart. And, and then it started to rain. And this was the once in a century rain that came to Santa Cruz that, that we'd never had rain like this before. And so the rain was now pouring everywhere. It came and washed out the bridge in town. And then water was like falling through the ceiling. And my life was feeling like completely, completely finished, completely torn to shreds. You know, that all that angst and misery. And I, uh, and in the middle of this, I thought back, the last time I'd seen the beautiful woman I was in love with who was completely wrong for me, we had gone to a concert in Santa Cruz where we saw Robin Williamson, formerly of the Incredible String Band. And we had seen him do a concert the first half, and then he told a story for the second half. And my eyes just opened up wide. And he told the story of the mists and the lock and the griegoch and all that. And I suddenly had like a flash of insight. I said, oh my God, that's my calling. I am going to be a British storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. I'm going to have to get the accent. I'm going to have to get the history, the culture. And and so there was that 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 idea running in my mind, that potential British storyteller dream, Simon, which, by the way, you fulfilled that somehow. I did. I, I never I, I'm was. not sure how I did, but I did. So, I had this dream of being a Jewish storyteller, but that never came through. <laughs> start with this way. Start. Oi. Start. Let's hear the oi. Come on, let's hear oi. Oi. No, no, with more feeling. Come on. Oi. No, a little bit slower, more feeling. Oi. 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 Good. Now try oi, gewalt. Oi, Gavalt. And now hit the Gavalt a little heavier. Gavalt. Gavalt. Oi, Gavalt. That's beautiful. In Berkeley, we call this Gavalt therapy. It's very good for you. It's very <laughs> okay. So there I was, my, my heart broken. I'd seen, I'd, you wanted the truth, right? So this is the truth, unadorned. I had seen, I'd seen um, Robin Williamson. I decided I wanted to be a British storyteller. And 
the rains were coming. They were running, falling through our roof. And I, I had run out of pots to catch the water in, right? And so I was using newspaper. And I opened the newspaper and it said, Storytelling Center helps young storytellers. And I read about a woman named Ruth Marie Arguello Sheehan, who you've probably never heard of. And back in the day, what she had done, if you go back to the beginning of NAPS, which is now the National Storytelling Association, National Storytelling Network, NAPS is the National Association for Preservation and Perpetuation of Storytelling and Overuse of Too Long Acronyms, right? That was So NAPS was, was in Jonesboro, but Ruth Marie was in Santa Cruz trying to trying to build her own her own storytelling organization and so this was a parallel one that never quite got off the ground the way the national storytelling festival did so the the american storytelling resource center this Uh woman ruth marie had had started this organization and it was really out of her house in santa cruz and so in the rain on my bicycle with just one leg pedaling because the other one had been dislocated and had gone out in this accident. And so I couldn't <laughs> use the other one, but so it was just one leg pedaling on my bike through the rain. I pedaled to her house and I say, you got to help me tell stories. And she said, you're a mess. What happened to you? <laughs> and I said, well, there was this auto accident in Chicago. There was this mime troop and I just went on and on. And and I ended with saying that I and I want to be a British storyteller. <laughs> she said, she said, I don't know about the British storyteller, but maybe a Yiddish storyteller. I said, Ah, a Yiddish I that I that that I could do. I mean I I, I read these Helm stories when I was a kid. All right. Helm stories. You know, and and those were like as easy for me as it is to be a British storyteller for you. Right. So, so, so she she very kindly she passed away just a few years ago, uh, but she she kindly agreed to sponsor an independent study at Santa Cruz in storytelling in Yiddish storytelling, and no I, I I convinced the I convinced a one of the professors there a, a playwriting teacher named George Hitchcock to sign off on it, and I uh, I began to go back to the books I read as a kid. Tales by Isaac Bashevis Singer, Stories of the Fools of Helm, The First Shlemiel, The Elders of Helm and the Foolish Fish, and then The Joys of Folklore, and began to realize, you know, it's the beauty of the Yiddish language that everything has a story to it. You know, yeah. a Shlemiel, a Shlemiel is technically defined as somebody who falls on his back and breaks his nose. Ah, uh, okay, I didn't know but, that. Oh yeah, yeah, and then you, but you have to put it in context because our story is characters. So, so if you're in a restaurant, the shlemiel would spill the soup, and the soup lands on the shlemazel. So shlemiel is always playing soup, and the shlemazel is the one without luck. And oh, then okay. The I thought you were going to say the ceiling or something like that. <laughs> no, no, the shlemiel. So shlemiel, shlemiel spills the soup, it lands on the shlemazel. Seated next to the shlemazel is is the nebish who says what kind of soup is that that looks good and then he looks over at the shlemazel and he says uh he says i see that he fell on you and broke your glasses you know i could fix 
your glasses if I had one of those little pocket screwdriver kits, but I don't have one. That's the Nebish. The Nebish does that. And anyway, there are all these characters and everything is a story. And suddenly these stories were just easy and natural to tell. Because they came from within. That, yeah, they, I, I mean, I, I'd sort of grown up with this idea yeah. and these characters and this, this longing for this place. So you read these stories, you said you read these stories, but were there people in your family that also read them or told you the stories? You know, it's funny. I, I listened to your podcast in conversation with storytellers, and I'm always struck by sort of the rich story milieu that people come from. Like I was listening to your interview with uh, J.O. Callahan. Oh, and yeah. House on Pill Hill and this yeah. and all the rooms, 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 and the people in orange cheeks. And, and yeah, and I, I love Jay's and I love his stories. And he just grew up steeped in the world of story. And then I, I was listening to Martin Shaw, who's, who's somebody I've worked with over the years, who I just really admire. I know you met him for the first time, you know, in the course of this this interview. And and again, this kind of magical other world. And I did not grow up in a world like that. I grew up in the, I think it was about the exact opposite of that. I, it, was, it was suburbs of suburbs of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Roads were all straight. And, you know, so much of storytelling, storytellers talk about the connection to the land, the connection to the place, you know, and, and we had landmarks, you know, way to the south was the the 10 freeway and way to the east was the 210 freeway. To the west there, there was the 405 freeway. And, and then the mythical Hollywood 101 that, you know, so, so that was our landmarks, freeways. And then we would, um, when it was clear, we could see the mountains, but it was usually smoggy, so we really couldn't see them. And the so was, there, I, was oh, there a lot of smog in your when you were growing up as a kid? There was, there was, there was so there was it was they said it was so thick you could cut it with a knife, but it did you know you cut it and you'd pull out a piece of smog and be able to breathe, <gasps> but it would fill in really quickly, so it didn't help much. <laughs> that part's not true, by the way. I'm just exaggerating. I, I guess. I think we guess. <laughs> there, there was a lot of smog, and it was. It felt like the least magical place on earth, and it's funny. You know, I, 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 I always have had kind of a, a jealousy of, of storytellers who who'd grown up, just steeped in the stories and songs. You're like Michael Poirier, parent. You know, these songs filled the air and had these all these. Beer. And so, you know, we were we were mostly struggling with trying to be poor and waiting for one of my father's inventions to catch on, which... That's right, because your father, your father <laughs> invented things that that didn't quite catch on or were already invented, am I right? Well, Do I remember I, that right? They were mostly ahead of their time, is the way it was. They were, they were things that... They were too early. Like, for a while, he did real estate. This was, like, back in the 70s. And I remember him saying, you know... In the future, you know, we're, we're driving clients around to show them open houses all the time. But in the future, people are going to be able to, when they want to look at a house, they'll look at a screen like a television. 
and it'll be like they're in the house and they can travel through and they can see pictures of that. You know, the technology just wasn't there and wouldn't be there for another 50 years. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, he had more inventions that were just not quite at the right time. And, you, and your mother, what did your mother do? My mother had been a journalist. And oh, she, so there was writing in the family then? There was definitely writing in the family. And she was a journalist, and what's more, she was curious about everyone and everything. And she would she would see people and wonder what the story was behind them. She'd come from Cleveland, where she'd worked in the Cleveland Plain Dealer as a uh -huh. reporter. And, and everyone she met, I remember we had like this old piano and, and nobody was playing it. So she arranged to give it away to somebody. And like the man came and got it. And then she said, I'm so glad he got it. I think, I think he must be a recovering alcoholic. And I thought, how did my mom get that? Yeah. Wow. And she had just picked up those things. You know, she had this, this sense of people and would always ask them questions. And it was, it was hard as she grew older because she was very hard of hearing. And I think it might, might have been the presses when she was in the newsroom at the Cleveland Plain Dealer that did damage. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so her hearing got worse as we got older. So she would ask these questions but not really be able to hear the answers. Oh, that must have been awful. It was it was it was really very hard and and you know sometimes I think I think sometimes I think if, if one could just sell irony on the wholesale market you could make <laughs> a very good living. <laughs> yes, one could. I yeah. think there's enough irony to go around for free though. That's the problem, right? Or <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay someone to take it away like hauling Iron away the irony. Right. <laughs> so, so you you got the writing chops from your mother, right? I did. I she and I was recently going through some papers, and I found little stories she'd helped me write up when I was a kid. So she oh, was no very, very encouraging. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Yeah. So are you gonna sh are you gonna share that at any point? Those stories, they are really not hardly worth sharing. <laughs> What's most meaningful about it is um, she would sit and type them up. You know what a typewriter is, yeah? Like an old-fashioned computer. You know, you, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My mom and, was, yeah, my mom was a secretary. Oh. And and so she ended up sometimes when they um, upgraded the typewriter, she would bring one of the old ones back home so that she could use it. And then we, we eventually got, um, when she, when she stopped doing that work, she would do freelance, you know, secretarial work. And so she had an electric typewriter and that mm -hmm. was loud. Cause you turn it on and click and then chuck, 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 chuck. So yeah, yeah. I know what I'm remember, remember selectric typewriters with a little ball on them. Did you have those? I saw them, but I didn't, I've never, I know of them, but I've never used one. But I know they were about, yeah. magic. It's like instead yeah. of the keys going up, the little ball would spin around, and each time, and then they had two tapes, one black, one white, and if you like wrote something, and you could you could like do three lines of text. First of all, how they how it knows the ball knows to turn the right way and press it. That's a, a miracle. Anyways, yeah, right. If you decided to undo something, 
and then it would go backwards with the white one going back over the same thing to type liquid paper liquid you know ribbon over oh, what wow. you just typed it was it was just it was just astounding i don't know it's a miracle and then it's evolved the way it's gone yeah <laughs> and now we don't even have that <laughs> just yeah. have these waves that go through the world to tell computers what it's crazy yeah i mean that and you know, toasters. toasters 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 are amazing because you put you put in the bread uh-huh the toast comes out no one knows what happens to the bread where the toast comes from it's a miracle i tell you <laughs> did we get off topic <laughs> no not at all not at all <laughs> So do you, do you think, was there anybody else in your family that told stories though? Did you have uncles or grandparents well, or aunts? My, or? my father would always make jokes, jokes about uh. them. And jokes are like stories that that never quite got to grow up. You know, they're, they're like the... <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he would always find something to laugh at. I mean, if I remember, if I, if I look back and say, what were the the main gifts I got from my parents, I would say from my mother, curiosity, and from my father, humor. Ah, oh, that's, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, humor is, is I think, is so important. Or at yeah. least it has been in my life. It's like, it's something that, you know, my mom and I, we always, you know, I, my parents were divorced when I was six, so I didn't see my dad that often. And my stepdad, well, we won't talk about him. But, uh, you know, my Is mom... Bruno? Had... We don't talk about Bruno? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> we don't talk about that. That did not happen in Las Vegas, so we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was, you know, so it, my mother and I and my brother, we had a, a good sense of humor just to get through a lot of the stuff that, that we had to get through, you know. So I think humor is, is invaluable in a, in a story or in life in general. That's what kept us going was was humor, and and there was a lot of illness. I think you read you read my first book, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness. You, you didn't read the second book, which is called Dreidels on the Brain. And there's a um, they sort of describe how how my mother and father would take turns going in and out of the hospital. Oh, really? This treatment for that treatment for thyroid cancer for this for that and on and on back and forth and and I oh described their their treatment is being um, being like our cars. That my mom was like the Dodge Dart, which is a, we kept on kind of fixing it up and it kept on running. But but my father was really more like the the Belvedere station wagon, this green station wagon we had that like didn't quite have all the pieces to start with, and just kept losing more pieces. And we kept adding things, to try to fix it up, and. And eventually just, you know, had to haul it away, to, you know, so somebody else could deal with it. And that was kind of like their health. Oh, wow. That's, that's not good. No. Uh, the, humor that you, the humor that you put in that is like, that's really funny, but really it's not. It's, it's, you know, it's you really... know, Simon, you think we can't sell irony wholesale, but if we could mix it with some humor... <laughs> <laughs> Make it out of it. that business go. It might. It might. We can, maybe we could do that. <laughs> we'll put. We'll put. I'll put a little. Uh, a little tag at the end saying you can buy it here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> www.ironyhumor.com or ironichumor.com. 
Yeah. And it'll just be a black page when people get there. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, dear. So you went to college, you left college, and you started your troop, and then the troop kind of ended itself, and you met this woman who says you Ruth could be Marie. a storyteller. Thank you. I'm glad you can follow a storyline. Ruth Maria Gueyushian. And she was the a, really a very kind woman and sponsored me on this independent study uh -huh. of, of storytelling. And uh, and then I did a little performance, you know, performance from in my college. Um, and it turns out that she was organizing her own storytelling festival. And this was, again, a parallel to Jonesboro. The American Storytelling Resource Center Storytelling Festival. This must have been like spring of 1980 in um, at Asilomar, this beautiful conference center in Monterey. Mm -hmm. And she had invited uh, famous storytellers to be there and, and to tell and, and workshops and, the, you know, the whole, the whole thing. When storytelling festivals weren't nearly so common. And... Uh, and I agreed to go help, like as an intern, to register people and do this and that. And and then one of the tellers she booked did not show up. Uh-oh. Sounds like fate is coming. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like youthful hubris and arrogance is coming. And uh -oh. she turned to me and said, Joel, you're a terrific storyteller. Why don't you step up and be the featured storyteller at this festival? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It was a little crazy. She was really sweet, Ruth Marie. And a little... There, there, are, there are reasons I've since learned why one might not do that. Like multiple <laughs> reasons. But I said, I said, sure, I'll do that. Thinking, all right, I know 11 stories, including the one about Ishlamil, Shlamazal, Nebesh, Nud, Nikshnur. I can, you know, I'll, I'll do that. So, so I you know, there on the spot sort of stood up and became this, the storyteller at this, this festival and managed to get through it. Okay. And eventually I decided I, I was at Santa Cruz and I was in the English department and it was a time when the state universities were just being slashed for, and you know, they were burning the furniture to stay warm there in it which is silly because it's pretty warm anyways, but they were already, they were, it was just barely alive. And Stanford, where I'd started, said, you know, you could come back here, we'd give you a scholarship back, and you could do your degree here. So I ended up going back to Stanford and, that, uh, and designing a, a degree, English creative writing and storytelling, and doing mostly independent study. And then, then you know, got, got the, I got the distinguished... Um, JB. You don't meet a lot of people with a JB at the end of their name. We stand for just barely. In the <laughs> that, that part's not true. But so I um so I, I know, BS. Yeah, BS. <laughs> that everybody does. So so that that was a that was a degree, you know, cobbled together around storytelling with a little mythology in it and a lot of writing in it. And that's that's answer to your question, how I got started in this. So, all right. So, um, what year was this then? When you, when you kind I, of came I finally out? graduated in 1983. Okay. And who, who else was in your area that was telling stories at that time? 
Well, uh, you so know, on the West Coast there probably weren't that many, were there? It seems to me that they were all in the in the middle of the country or on the East Coast. I think there were a lot known. The one, the one particular who was at that festival, mm-hmm. and who really became quite an influence to me was uh, Steve Sandfield. Okay. Do you know Steve, or did you know Steve? I do not know. No. Yeah. So Steve, Steve was. Um, you know, he passed away recently as well. And he was, a, there, there are some storytellers you hear in life and by virtue of their voice and something of their mannerisms, you can just repeat every story they tell. Or I don't, I don't know if you can. That, that's, that's what I can. And not many like that. Right, yeah. But Steve had a, a kind of a depth and a cadence. And a, he'd, you know, he was, he was a Jewish from New England, but roots in the old country. And he told these Yiddish stories. And he was he was somebody who I just instantly gravitated towards and who I would like see every few years at a festival and event or performance and always say something critical of what I was doing. And what you were performing at the same festivals, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. He would always say something critical. Mixed with something complimentary, but also critical. I remember I was once at a festival somewhere in California near Yosemite, and I had just come back from traveling and wove together this whole set of stories that I thought was just a beautiful mix of folk tales and personal stories. And and it was really some of the finest work I'd ever done. And... And it was this kind of oleo setting where two different rooms and people are going back and forth. And I, you know, and I had a half hour time slot and it came in like at 34 minutes. And I said, what did you think? He said, too long. He said, I don't care what you did. Too long. You never, ever, ever go over time. Well, that's a true statement. (laughs) That is very true. That is very true. And I've never gone over time since. I bet, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he was... He, he was just this sort of like so a wide aesthetic soul. Yeah, he wasn't, so he wasn't critical of you. He was. No, he was. He, <laughs> he was. He was critical. So he wasn't just dispensing advice. He was actually like putting you down. Or, I mean, so Not I. Not putting I, you down, but he was, it was this sort of, this mixed thing. And I don't want to make, because I, I, there are people who listen to this who, who, who knew him. And. He was, he was somebody who had an innate sense of what was right about a story. Sometimes he would do these story critiquing sessions, which yeah. could be very harsh. And then at the same time, he saw something in me as a young storyteller that was really good, and he wanted to develop. So he saw that, that potential, and he was someone who who just had a a way about him that could be gruff but also loving and he was not he was he was far from perfect and he'd had like battles with alcoholism for a time and uh and i learned after he died that he was um i mean i saw him last he he founded the sierra storytelling festival which is oh, a beautiful okay. festival. He's the founding founding artistic director. And huh. I learned there that when I performed there, which was the last time I saw him, 
of his experience as a freedom rider down south, you know, going going to sort of on, on buses to towns to sort of with, with blacks and whites together to fight for the rights to vote. And mm-hmm. I later learned, oddly, he was he was best man at Leonard Cohen's wedding. Wow. <laughs> Odd. I had no idea, though. But to me, he was Steve Stanfield, the storyteller, and, and a, a big influence there. That's really cool. So where were you telling stories primarily when you started telling stories? Was so it, what happened? Festivals or were there schools that hired you or? You know what? What I did first was after college. Um, I never had a practical thought in my mind about this, about how <laughs> I was going to make a living. I'd grown up poor uh-huh. and figured that something would turn up and I, I'd manage. And I, I came up to San Francisco and over the summer, there was a summer camp at San Francisco Jewish Community Center. And I went in and just told stories there to the kids at camp and found that sort of word spread and sort of schools would ask me to come. And then I realized I had been traveling. I wanted to travel again. And I, uh, as I mentioned to a friend, uh, his name is Urs, Urs Steiner. He's a, he's a conductor now from Switzerland. And he said, I said, you know, I'd love to travel and, and tell stories, but I don't speak all these languages. Or he said, and he said, oh, but Joel, don't you know, they have in the world many international schools where they speak English. And if you if you were to go to these international schools, they would let you tell stories. And I said, oh, great. And I like got a list of these. And I remember sitting down with a typewriter, Rebecca typewriter. I got a list of, of all these different schools in Europe I started with. And I said, I am a traveling storyteller here in California. I will be performing in, and then I left it blank right at the end of the line. And then I, I copied these off on the copy machine. And then I, with my typewriter, I, up, I will be performing in, Barcelona. I will be performing in Rome. I will be performing in London. I will be performing in Frankfurt. And so, and I just sent out all these letters and I did, I had no plans to go anywhere, but then based on who wrote back, then I sort of put together a tour. And of course, like Americans think about Europe, it's like, oh, Europe, it's not very big. So let's see, if I'm in Vienna one day, then I could probably get to Barcelona in two days from that and then Paris isn't far from that and you know it's like running all over Europe but then sometimes people welcomed me to stay for a long time a, jo- a camp in Rome gave me a job for a summer oh, nice. just buy a one-way ticket and go to the next place we didn't have Google Maps in those days so we had no idea how long it would take to get from one place to another we, if you we had from no idea there, no right? it's just and, and you look at a map of Europe and it doesn't look that big <laughs> and the roads aren't straight like those in California. That's right. That's they're, right. Yeah. They're not yeah, like was... not on the West Coast. They're all twisty, windy. Um, when we moved to Boston, we, you know, we lived in, my wife and I, we lived in Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. for about five years and we moved to Boston and I could never find my way around Portland until it took me about a year to get used to like the grid system. And it's really uh-huh. simple. I don't know why I had a problem with it. But then when I got to Boston, it was like, I could always find my way around all the twisty roads. And Sarah's like, how do you, con-? And she, she was which is like, completely the opposite. I, I Portland is right. like Washington, DC. It's like all math numbers yeah. just very, yeah. or, or the easiest place to look is Salt Lake city. You can, you can look at a house and the address and you can actually like just tell who lives there from the address. I mean, it's amazing and where it is. <laughs> it's true. So, um, so what kind of, 
when you were telling most of the stories that you told were Yiddish stories and stories about your travels. Is that right? Well, what happened was I, I gathered a bunch of folk tales mm-hmm. that, that I, that just, I liked. And, and what happened was, as I traveled, I found that the story, it's like a musician with a song. Sometimes the, the story introducing the song outgrows the song and the stories to and yes. from and on ways to the travels would would outgrow the travels and sort of one story leads to another i'll give give you an example here let's see if i have this in my in my pocket here joel is digging around in his pocket right now <laughs> i have some change so, so Stan, you've, you've probably heard told no variants and by the way use whatever you want on the podcast and cut out what doesn't work but um i guess you do that anyways but but um you know, one of the early stories that I loved was a King Solomon tale back in back in the old days of Jerusalem when Solomon was king. And in those days, there was a bakery that baked the freshest, best smelling bread. I mean, the smell from this bread would waft out through the ovens. It would wind through the marketplace. People would find themselves drawn in to buy this bread. Maybe just smell it and go on their way. And so, so one morning, a uh, it was a Friday morning and a, a poor woman was standing in front of the bakery begging for coins and saying, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace, but it's a not so subtle reminder. Shabbat is a time to give some tzedakah, some charity, right? Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. And the baker comes and says, lady, what are you doing? What am I doing? I'm standing in front of your bakery, begging and, and smelling your bread. I know, I own that bread. And you smell the bread in my bakery, pay for it. She said, no, I didn't eat it. I just know. Yeah, I own the bread. I own the smell. You pay for it. It's a ridiculous case, but you don't need a reasonable case to start a fight. People gathered around, pushing, shoving, arguing. Finally, somebody said baker. If you think this one has to pay for just smelling the bread, take your case to King Solomon. He'll judge it fairly. And the baker said, that is exactly what I will do. And in those days, you didn't have to file any pretrial motions. He literally dragged her to the court of King Solomon and said, Your Highness, this woman has been smelling the bread in my bakery. I insist she pay. And those in the court laughed because it was ridiculous, but, but not Solomon. Solomon the wise said, Never judge your case until you've heard all the facts. He said to the woman, Is this true? Have you indeed been smelling this man's bread? She said, I'm... I'm a beggar. I, I was in front of this bakery. Everyone smelled his bread. I didn't ask if everyone smelled his bread. I asked if you smelled his bread. Yes, but, but must I pay for just the smell? Solomon thought for a time and said, this man is a baker. He makes his living baking this bread. And until he sells the bread, he owns the bread and the smell. You've just admitted that you smelled that bread. So it's only fair that you pay for the smell. And now the court grew very quiet. Solomon turned to the woman and said, how much do you have? She said, I'm a beggar, I have half a shekel. He said, that'll do. Then he turned to the baker and said, there, you've been paid. He said, I haven't been paid, she has to give me the money. Give you the money? Didn't you hear the coins? The sound of those (laughs) coins. For the smell of your bread. So it's a favorite story, one you've heard over the years, one I've yeah. told many times. And 
But as far as how stories evolve and change, first I found variations of it. You know, in French, there was a clouchard, a street person who was, you know, much the same as Amazon René, who had this, this situation which dovetailed with a, with a, a clouchard, the street person I came to know in Paris. And that's sort of woven with that story. There's a, there's a Japanese huh. version that I found on the subways of Tokyo, Judge Ouka Etizen. And of course, the subways of Tokyo are kind of a wild place anyways, because the, the trains come. And I'd never seen this before. Have you been to Tokyo? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, it's kind of, it's astounding. They do this in Hong Kong too. The trains come and, and they open up and they, and they like run on time, not just like switch watch time, but digital time. Like whoosh, the doors open and you go to Shinjuku station, which is the largest subway station in the world at the time. It has like a population of 1.25 million just at the station. And <laughs> Everybody seems to ride the train at the same time. My friend who lived there said, that's the five slamma jamma hour. You don't go there. But the, everybody goes to ride. And you stand in, inside this subway car that is absolutely filled with people that just can't hold anymore. And as you do, people stand calmly waiting outside the door. And then the pushers come with gloves and push them in. And they actually push people in. And they look like, they look like mimes sort of doing this kind of thing pushing people in and people do this everyday work and then beep the doors close and their their hand fingers sticking out and coattails sticking out on the next station we got to the next station people just the doors open people spill out they take themselves up pick themselves off and i spilled out with everybody else and i looked at me and there was a book stand that said tales of the japanese king solomon oh wow that's exactly what i said i said oh wow and there was this picture book of Judge Uoka Etizen from the Edo period, where there was, again, a similar story. This was about a poor woman who lived above a yakitori restaurant where all she could eat was rice, but she smelled the food and came to to pay the same thing. So I was telling the story once at a school in Switzerland, uh-huh. and I, the fellow friend Chuck Kruger, who, founded the, who end, ended up going on to found the Cape Clear Storytelling Festival, which was near and dear to my heart, um, so Chuck was driving me home back to his house, and I had just told the story. And we were driving through this tunnel, a lot of tunnels in Switzerland, and this light flashed. I said, whoa, what's that? He said, oh, that's a, uh, that's a camera. I'd never seen this before. That's a camera that takes a picture of you, and if you're, if you're speeding, then there's no cop needed. It's just you, you get a ticket in the mail that says, here's a picture of you. You were doing this many miles an hour. And, uh, you know, you owe us 150 francs. I said, huh. I said, then you could send them a picture of 150 francs. <laughs> if you did that, the Swiss police would then send you a picture of a jail cell. Saying, this is where you're going to end up if you don't pay. I said, you could send them your picture to turn it into the jail cell. And we went back and forth on this for a while. And then he said, um, he said, you know, a friend of his was going through one of these tunnels and he wasn't speeding, but the light went on and he had some extra time. So he figured he'd go back around again and go through the tunnel and this time smile and wave at the camera just to give some, and he did it again with a big smile, a big wave at the camera. And then the next week he got three tickets for not, wearing his seatbelt oh no 
And so then I was telling this somewhere in Amsterdam, and they said, you know, in Amsterdam, we, we have a similar system, but a little bit different, which is when the light flashes and you get a letter in the mail, and they say, we have a picture of you driving and speeding, send us the money. And they finally get the money much quicker because most of the people who are speeding are men driving with somebody who's not their wife. Oh. And the threat of having the picture sent to them is, uh, is enough to get them to pay fast. So it's this kind of one story leads to another. And it's, it's, I think that's always been kind of my delight is the way the world of story and the world of life kind of mix together. They do. Yeah, I'm a big believer of that. Um, and the other way around as well, I've found, for me anyway, is that I'll latch onto a story. Uh, I mean, it just speaks to me for some reason. I can't figure out what that reason is, but it's a story that I fall in love with. It's a story that I know that I have to tell. And it's not until like a couple of years later when I'm like, oh, hang on. This was going on in my life. And I'm telling this story and they go together really well. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting that the stories that I tell are almost biographical. <laughs> <laughs> now you're seeing the advantage of this wholesale irony business. Yes. <laughs> irony plus humor plus point. I, I think it's, I think one could make a living at this stuff. We could. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so far. Yeah. So but that far. was, for me, that's, that was the case with the beggar king because I had told that story for some, some years before I, I fell into it. Yeah. That's Yeah. That's another thing as well. Right. It's like some stories we, we can't, we don't fall into them. We just tell them because there's something special about them. We don't figure out what it is. And then there are some stories that we can't tell, you know, like I, I've, I've mentioned this before. It's like, I love Beowulf. I've got, you know, four or five copies of it. Up mm-hmm. on my shelf, different variants of it, and it's a story that I, I guess I haven't had the life experience yet to enable me to to tell that story, with 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 heart and with authenticity, I guess. Because mm-hmm. when I try and work on it and work on it and work on it, it's like it just doesn't it just doesn't feel right, and so I put it aside. But there are also stories that that I've told and I've kind of like, you know, like the parrot and the merchant, the Rumi story, mm-hmm. and. Um, I told it every once in a while and it was kind of like, you know, it's, it's not a bad story. I like telling it. It's kind of fun, but I didn't tell it that often. And, um, I didn't realize it was a story by Rumi. I just, it was in one of these, you know, uh, um, anthologies. Mm-hmm. It was always listed as a story from Persia. And then I saw a picture book and I was like, Oh, I wonder what their resource is. And it was one of those rare picture books that actually has the resource at the back. And it said, this is from a poem by Rumi. And I was like, I love Rumi you know i've read quite a bit of rumi why haven't i seen this story this would have jumped out at me i would have known this and so i wrote down the name of the book that it was from i did a whole bunch of digging and delving and i found this poem which is like 40 pages long or something ridiculous like this really well i think it's i think it's probably four pages of like full-size letterhead paper and mm-hmm. the story itself is probably a paragraph or two right uh-huh. and it's interdispersed throughout this poem right and i was like oh my gosh when you read the whole poem then you get this completely, you get this in-depth knowledge about what the story is really about. And as soon as I read that, 
it was just like oh my gosh that's what this story is about it isn't just about this it's about it's about you know our, our choices and and freedom and it's not just about clever birds tricking us right and and when i read that it was just like uh now now it become it became one of my favorite stories to tell and i was just Can like, Oh, I'm not going to tell it right now. We're interviewing you. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm going to have to come and interview you later because that's going to want. And, and the first question is: so tell me about this parrot and the merchant. Very, very nice, friendly storyteller. First, you tease me with a story. You got this great story. I want to hear about the parrot and the merchant. And suddenly, it's like, no, no, back to you. All right. <laughs> so one of the things I think is really, really important about your story is the fact that you know, not it's not just about you know your passion of travel that is is has added to your story and it's added to your repertoire and it's added to your your creative um uh your your creative input into your stories but you were also you also got uh you had a, a sickness with your with your throat that's true that's true thyroid cancer and that's when i was talking about um falling into the beggar king it's funny because I remember because that it, it goes right to that because I was um, I remember doing a workshop. It was for rabbinic students in Jerusalem at Hebrew University, sort of teaching them how to tell stories. And and there was a moment, yeah, I'd sort of known of this story, which was from Elijah's violin, but there's different variations about how Solomon has his dream that he's going to. He's going to, uh, his father comes to him and says, you must build a temple. And his father describes it in every manner and detail and how many cubits is. He says, but this temple must be built using no metal, for metal is the stuff of war. And this is to be a temple of peace. And so this, this uh, sets Solomon on a quest to find this worm, the Shamir, little tiny worm that's uh, the size of a grain of barley but can split stone. And I remember sort of describing at the beginning of the story, one moment it just kind of caught because he ends up capturing Ajmudai, the king of the demons, who creates all these these magical illusions while he's there. You know, he, he, it, seems like, it seems like it's raining the palace, but coins are falling through the air and then they, they touch the ground and disappear. And, and, and suddenly the pillars in the palace one day turn to pomegranates and Solomon opens one and out comes a butterfly with blue wings and he's infuriated by these illusions. So he says to Ajmodai, he says, before I set you free, he's held Ajmodai prisoner here for seven years while he's built the temple, it's all done. He says, before I set you free, I'll ask of you a single question. And it's simply this. I am a great judge, known for my wisdom throughout the world. And yet I'm often called upon to distinguish between truth and illusion. Can you teach me something? of the nature of illusion. To which Ajmodai, king of the demons, says, illusion. Is that what you wish, your highness, to learn the secret of illusion? No, no, no. I could never teach you the secret of illusion unless you were to remove your ring. You see, Solomon had a, a ring he wore that had been given to him by his father. Inside inscribed the secret name of God, the name no one knows to spell or pronounce. And Ajmodai said, yes, just remove the ring for an instant. And I'll teach you the secret of illusion. And Solomon asked his advisor, say, absolutely not. This is the king of the demons. It's the only thing keeping him here is the ring. But Solomon says, no, no, I'll do it. I am Solomon the wise. And his advisor says, your highness, this is unwise. Don't tell me what's wise, right? Solomon was a little arrogant. Don't tell me what's wise. They call me Solomon the wise. 
He says, I'll chain Ajmudai up on the far side of the room. I'll stand over here. I remove the ring just long enough to hear what he has to teach me about illusion. Whereupon he removes the ring and a gentle breeze begins to blow. And the breeze is coming from Ajmudai's wings. For Ajmudai had wings of an eagle. And each time he flapped, he doubled in size from 8 feet to 16 feet, 32 feet, 64 feet, 128 feet. You do the math. He got taller and taller. He said, you fool, Solomon. You should never have removed your ring. With that, he reached down, plucked out the ring, and tossed it out the window. It flew over the desert. flew over the mountains, over the ocean. It flew over deserts and oceans. finally landed somewhere in the ocean in the distance. And now it's your turn, Solomon. Kiss your kingdom goodbye. And he picked up Solomon, threw him out the other window. And Solomon flew over the city of Jerusalem, over mountains, over oceans, over deserts, and finally landed in the midst of a vast, endless expanse. And when he looked in a puddle of water, he saw his face, which was not the Solomon he knew. It was an old man. And so began the wanderings of Solomon as a beggar, a journey that would last a lifetime. So at some point in telling the beginning of that story, I got really into it, and I didn't know why. But now back to the story at hand. It was not until I found they had thyroid cancer, which I thought would make just a terrific story when I told it, because there was a needle that was this big, right? And like, like, why would somebody use a needle that big to test the thyroid? And and it had begun with gout. There was a, it was just this odd mix of things that I thought. I, I said, Tolly, to my wife, this is going to make the best story. Look, there's there's the gout, there's the needle, there's a dream about lifting a piano up, dropping on my foot because I that, that was the gout. All these pieces. She said, Joel, this is cancer. I said, No, this will make a great story. And then when I woke up. I know this is a horrible place to end, but in the way of all good cliffhangers, I really want you to come back and listen to part two, where Joel finishes the story he was just telling and shares even more stories, a joke or two, can you imagine, and his process of creating and presenting a tale. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, one of our elders, then please send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website at Simon Brooks Storyteller and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. They're really good. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release and exclusive content on my work www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks If you can't join my wonderful tribe of patrons then help me out by doing something you can do I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts wherever you found this episode It doesn't take long and it helps not just me but others find and enjoy this podcast Thanks again for being here with me I know that there are a lot of other places you could be and I really appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. 
It's, it's just, just a story. story.